it rolls around every week or so, or maybe every month. Welcome back to Oncology, the Inquisitive Mind, Onco Snacks Edition. As always, I am accompanied by my glorious and robust co-host, Dr. Michael Fernando. Take the robust comment as you want. How you doing? <laughs> robust is a stretch. Still <laughs> viral, still nasally, slightly still less COVID. robust. Still COVID, yes, but uh, no, feeling good, Josh. And I'm not sure about how much we can claim that this is a fortnightly series anymore because we have been a bit hit and miss recently. Apologies for that. We endeavor to bring it back, but working full time gives us limited, limited time to fit it all into a, a week's schedule. I think what you're saying, Josh, is that we need to stop working full time. Yes, and find another way to pay ourselves. <laughs> yes, exactly. What are we talking about today, Josh? Before we go completely off the rails. Oh, completely mad, some might say. We are continuing a trend from our last Onco Snacks, which is superficial thrombophlebitis. So check it out if you haven't listened to it already. But I thought today, Michael goes, why would we talk about this? But I wanted to talk about deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism in the context of malignancy. I feel over the years, it's one of those questions I'll get from interns, residents, ED specialists about what to put someone on when you'd consider A, B, or C. And I thought it's something that we can talk about because PEs and DBTs don't present classically like a textbook and their management is somewhat nuanced. So it's worthwhile exploring. Back in the old days, PEs and DVTs were colloquially known apparently as the great deceiver because before the advent of CTPAs and VQ scans, D-dimers, if you want to be really generous, they would strike people down without a hint of symptoms or there was no real textbook presentation for PE and they were a very common cause of sudden cardiac death. So very important to keep in the back of your mind particularly when you're talking about cancer patients. And why is that, Josh? Michael, before I, before I answer that, have you ever heard of the phrase clot on the trot? Is that like teaching on the run, but with thrombuses? Running thrombuses. Thrombuses with little, little, uh, little Nikes that just sort of run around. Maybe our 50-minute time slot is going to be taken up. But <laughs> I have this vague recollection of my mother, who was a retired nurse, telling me a story of her patients that they would go to the toilet where they had a massive PE and ended up dropped dead on the toilet. And it was this thing in the 80s. I don't know if it's still a, maybe I've just skewed this from an eight-year-old child's mind, but I just remember this phrase, clot on the trot. Um, feel free to uh, send us a message if you've ever heard of that, or if you think this is ridiculous, let us know also. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is a rare insight into Josh's childhood that has turned him into the man he is today. <laughs> so proud. So proud of my, uh, <laughs> oh God, don't listen to this episode. I'm going to, anyway, let's move on. Michael, do you want to talk about the background? Well, yes. Yeah, so as we know, and as I was trying to lead on Josh with a leading question before he decided to. I switched it. <laughs> <laughs> Before he decided to talk about clots and sudden cardiac death on the toilet, we know that patients with malignancy are at a high risk of developing um, VTEs, DVTs, PEs. So it is really a unspoken and in many cases spoken rule that if you think a patient has a PE, even if there's a bit of diagnostic ambiguity that we were alluding to before, you really need to do the investigations. P patients with cancer have a PE until proven otherwise at the slightest hint. I've CTPA patients on no other basis that they have unexplained sinus tachycardia. More specifically, DVTs and PEs are the second leading cause of death in cancer, 
cancer patients after death from cancer itself. So all of your febrile neutropenias, your immune-mediated side effects, they all pale in incidence compared to the mortality cost of uh, thromboembolism. Timely treatment is critical. We know this because if patients are at risk or they are about to have a massive PE, and remember these are patients who are not exactly crisp in the first place, you generally have a fairly short window before things start getting critical. So you need to act fast. But fortunately, Josh, acting fast is actually a fairly simple method these days. Josh, what are some of the risk factors for patients to develop DVTs or PEs? Yeah, I think that's that's actually a pretty good question because Michael, you said we you scan everyone. Maybe that's an Austin thing. You come through the door, you get a CTPA before the diagnosis of your cancer. But they did find that up to 18% of patients who had a PE or had a DVT actually had a subsequent diagnosis of cancer. So that's how common clots are due to malignancy. So the first thing is having a malignancy, hospitalization, onset of chemotherapy, disease progression, if you've got central catheter lines, and the commonest cancers that you were expected to see a malignancy include lung at 17%, the pancreas at 10%, colorectal 8%, kidneys 8%, and the prostate at 7%. So if you've got someone with lung cancer, and how hard is that? You've got lung cancer where they probably have a diagnosis or might have a diagnosis of COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and they're already short of breath, the idea of presenting with shortness of breath and pleuritic chest pain is quite might be quite common for them. So being able to use these signs and symptoms is somewhat ambiguous. As Mike, you said, you know, the slightest symptom, you're going to scan someone, and I totally approve of that. But speaking of symptoms, you're going to say something, Michael. Well done, Josh. Well read. <laughs> um, I did want to come back to something that you just said, which is the patients who were known to have an active malignancy prior to the diagnosis of a venous thromboembolism. I don't know how it is with you, but in places that I've worked, in places that we've both worked actually, if a patient has an unprovoked PE, seemingly out of the blue, one of the first and most important things that you have to do in your workup is actually go hunting for an underlying malignancy because cancer is such a, such an important risk factor for a sudden, otherwise unexplained uh, thromboembolist that Sometimes DVTs and PEs actually lead to the diagnosis of cancer as opposed to the other way around. So if a patient has an unexplained DVT, they have no risk factors at all, always keep in mind that there might be more under the surface. In terms of symptoms though, Josh, coming in a very roundabout way, see two of us can play at the the derailing game. These are fairly straightforward. These are some things that we all learn in med school because... Recognition of people who might have a DVT or a PE is incredibly important and it's really bread and butter stuff. So so common clinical signs for DVTs, fairly stock standard stuff, swelling or edema, pain, warmth, they're usually unilateral. And that's one differentiator clinically between DVTs and something like a chronic venous eczema from uh, heart failure, as an example. Be aware that particularly if you've got an underlying malignancy, Bilateral DVTs are a known clinical entity. They're rare, but they can happen. For PEs, sudden onset dyspnea, pleuritic chest pain and cough are your textbook things. But remember, PEs are the great, uh, the great masquerader. Patients may not have any symptoms at all. As I've said, as I said previously, I've had patients who are fairly uh, innocuous. They've just had unexplained 
asymptomatic sinus tachycardia, you scan them and lo, lo and behold, there's PE. So you've got to really have very sensitive antennae for patients with potential VTEs in a malignant setting. In terms of physical examination, much more uh, useful for DVTs rather than PEs. Uh, in the DVT space, look for things like dilated superficial veins, unilateral edema or swelling, warmth, tenderness, erythema, larger calves uh, unilaterally. I think for our physician's exam, Josh, it was part of the exam that we actually had to get out a tape measure and measure one calf and then measure the other and compare whether there was a significant difference between the two. But um, you can probably just eyeball that in most cases because it is usually quite distinct and patients will be able to tell you my right calf or my left calf is not normally that big. If it's PEs, examination findings are often non-diagnostic and this is where the importance of scans come in. But if you really want to be old school, you look for things like hemoptysis. Now, hemoptysis is a fairly late sign because it indicates underlying ischemia of the lung. So it's actually very uncommon these days, particularly with the awareness of PEs, the earlier diagnosis, it's actually uncommon for patients to present with hemoptysis. Massive PEs present with syncope and signs of hemodynamic compromise, such as hypotension and shock. And in the acute setting, hypotension is the only reason to thrombolize someone. Though in a patient with malignancy, that discussion becomes a lot more dicey because you're also putting them at risk of bleeding, particularly if they have brain mets as part of their disease. Other common signs uh, on examination are tachypnea, tachycardia, chest pain, diaphoresis, or an S3 or S4 gallop, which is audible in 30% of patients. I'll be honest, I've never heard one of those, but hey, if you've heard one, then you know what it sounds like, I guess. In terms of investigations, for uh, non-malignant patients, you know, there's always the question of whether you do a D-dimer or whether you don't. As we said in our superficial thrombophlebitis episode, do not bother with malignant patients because you are always going to get an elevated result. And even if you don't get an elevated D-dimer, you're still going to do a CTPA anyway. Uh, CTPAs are the standard of care for PEs. They're much, much better than VQs. Um, so unless the patient has, for example, an iodine contrast allergy, you should really go for a CTPA every time. You should have a look at uh, doing an ultrasound for lower limb DVTs or even after you've uh, diagnosed someone with a PE um, because the burden of overall clot can determine whether you recommend the patient stays on bed rest. It can also sort of, depending on where you work, determine whether you want to keep them on clexane or otherwise known as uh, low molecular weight heparin or enoxaparin uh, for a period of time. In terms of um, other sort of simpler stuff, so ABGs, not really helpful, but they can reveal things like hypoxia, hypocapnia, respiratory alkalosis. Troponins might be high in the setting of a very large PE because you've got uh, cardiac strain. ECGs, Josh, do you know what the most common finding on an ECG uh, with a patient with PE is? Sinus tachycardia. That is a trick question, my that friend. Is a trick. Well, the trick question is that uh, the most common finding is a normal ECG, but if you're going to be uh, specific and say it's a, what is the uh, most common abnormal finding, sinus tachycardia is absolutely Absolutely correct. Meaning it was it was a double trick question, um, and so and so this whole idea of S one Q three T three yes it's described but like so many clinical signs it was done before the era of investigations and it is neither sensitive nor specific for PE. There are a couple of other things, but uh, I feel like that we've gone over the investigation component for far too long. Josh, do you want to talk about some treatment? Because it might sound easy, just whack them on some blood thinners and call it a day, but there are a few subtleties. Michael, 
there are some caveats in regards to which anticoagulation you choose. And as new drugs have come on the scene, the options have increased. There are multiple agents. So the first is subcutaneous, low molecular weight agents. The common ones you might think of is enoxaparin, also known as clexane, deltaparin, and tinzaparin. I personally have never used tinzaparin, but I'm assuming it's out there. There's others which include it's always out there, include oral factor 10A inhibitors such as apixaban, rivaroxaban, and edoxaban, and oral thrombin inhibitors like dibigatran. And then you've got the old school IV or subcutaneous ultra-fractionated heparin, so unfractionated heparin, and then you've got warfarin. And the question is, what do you do? How do you choose? And I think I'm going to try and break this down by a class and then the caveats within that class. So if you've got the factor 10A inhibitors, Michael, as a sidebar, these are the best ones. Spoilers. Spoiler everybody. alert. Spoiler alert. You can just stop pick- listening now, basically. That's it. You have a pixaban, and that's the preferred monotherapy. It doesn't need heparin bridging. It's wonderful. There's a randomized controlled trial compared to low molecular weight heparin, and it was just as efficacious. The benefits is that it might carry lower risks of bleeding, particularly the GI tract. And remember, if you've got a GI malignancy, you want to try and minimize that potential complication as much as possible. And if you and that's compared to rivaroxaban or adoxaban, which are the two siblings of a pixaban, you might say. The thing is, it's a twice daily preparation. And if your patient hates taking tablets, which I'm assuming they're going to be in a lot because this is oncology for the tableted mind, then that's there's other options like rivaroxaban, which is a once daily preparation. The thing is, rivaroxaban, you know, you want to avoid it in upper gastrointestinal cancers because there is more bleeding. And that's been reported with this agent. And the other thing, you want to take it with food because it maximizes absorption. Moving on to another class, so enoxaparin or low molecular weight heparin, it works. It's an injection. It's either once a day or twice a day, depending how you kind of formulate it, but it's an injection in the stomach. And if you've got cancer and it's a long-term injection, that's going to suck for the patient. Moving to the third class, dibigatran. So dibigatran is, uh, you know, it's an oral thrombin inhibitor. Came out around the same time as a pixaban and rivaroxaban, give or take five years, but it hasn't taken off in the same same way. I think it, you know, it hasn't really been compared to to chronic low molecular weight heparin. So it's a bit hard to recommend in active cancer. When you look at the first line, and if you break it down, the simple things, and I'll get rid of all the systematic reviews and the meta-analysis I've got in our notes, Michael. First line, use a Pixaban, right? It's a factor 10A. It works well. There's evidence to support it. There's meta-analyses to support it. Then the next question is, what about a DOAC versus warfarin? Warfarin is old school. It works, but it's a pain to control. And a lot of our patients are older, and that means a tablet once a day, multiple blood tests, you know, issues if they have grapefruit. There's also some older evidence, Josh, with warfarin um, that patients with cancer due to interactions with various chemotherapy agents or even interactions with the cancer itself, it's actually more difficult to keep a patient within the therapeutic INR range. So they spend more time either subtherapeutic or supratherapeutic and have higher rates of clots and bleeds uh, compared to at the time it was just compared to things like heparin, but it's probably comparable to um, factor 10A inhibitors as well. Considering how difficult warfarin is to manage with patients times, yeah, yeah. that don't have cancers, I, that's not a surprising factoid. But I love your factoids, Michael. Thank you for sharing. This is Oncology for the Inquisitive, Michael's factoids as well. We're just, we're just throwing out alternative titles. We'll have a poll on what we should actually be called. 
coming soon. <laughs> That's it. And don't forget to like and subscribe if you like our podcast. Mikey, I might move to second line. And then if you want to chat about contraindications and special populations. So second line is unfractionated heparin followed by warfarin. So if you can't have any of those classes, then move on to that. Don't kind of go looking for something else. And the reasons why is kidney problems, if you're unstable, if if you're obese, like there's not a lot of evidence for clexane. If you're over 150 kilos, you're still going to have to do back to 10A levels to figure out what's going on. You know, if they've discontinued or you've reversed anticoagulation, you know, unfractionated heparin, if you've got an extensive clot burden, people will be more likely to look at sort of unfractionated heparin, but Mike will go into that a little bit more. And then if you really want tight regulation, but again, I don't know if that's truly going to be the reality with warfarin. No, I think that the difficulty and the impracticality of getting tight control with warfarin and the ubiquity and convenience really of anti-10A inhibitors have meant that warfarin has really fallen out of this space. But there are exceptions. So some patients will have contraindications to anticoagulation as a whole. If you've got patients where you're consistently worried about bleeding, that's the main thing. Whether that's GI bleeding, if you have a patient with melanoma or renal cell cancer, you would be petrified about them having brain mets that can spring leaks because they're very vascular tumors. Patients who are actively bleeding and need uh, an anticoagulatory strategy, as it were, which we have seen. I've seen it a couple of times. The Alternative is a inferior vena cava filter, which is exactly what it says. Josh has just made a face. I can tell that he doesn't like these very much, but basically it is exactly what it says on the tin, which is just a filter that sits in the inferior vena cava. It doesn't do anything for the prevention of DVTs. That's the first thing that we should say. With the inferior vena cava, all you're trying to do is stop those DVTs becoming PEs. And I had a colleague ask about an IVC filter for a patient who had a DVT, but then also had a known PE. And I said, well, what is even the point of putting an IVC filter in? Because they've already got PEs. You might stop the load becoming bigger, but we need to anticoagulate them. So IVC filters should not routinely be placed for the initial management of ETs in any population because they are really a compromise. And that I think we've we've made that clear with Josh's silent facial expression and and uh, uh, my in, uh, initial foray into this subject. There are no randomised trials that have studied the safety and efficacy of IVC filters in the treatment and prevention of VTEs of patients with cancer. Retrospective analysis of patients with cancer-associated DVTs. There was a very high rate of recurrence: thirty-two versus seventeen percent of patients for patients who had an IVC filter compared to those who didn't had a recurrence of. VTE. The other practical thing, of course, is that IVC filters, in addition to be putting in, need to be taken out. If you leave an IVC filter in, it's going to clog and you're going to have absolutely no venous return from your lower limbs because the IVC filter is just clot. So they are a temporizing measure. Usually you put them in, you get the patient over their bleeding diathesis if possible, and then you take them out, put them on some anticoagulation. So they're a temporizing measure only to be used if the patient has an absolute contraindication to any therapeutic anticoagulation. And then you have the special populations. For patients with renal failure, this is one of the few areas that apixaban is very much contraindicated. You can reduce the dose to 2.5 milligrams twice a day to a certain threshold, but there does come a point where there is not enough evidence to safely prescribe apixaban for patients with severe renal failure. And, and those patients are those that, that have a creatinine clearance of less than 30 mils per minute. What we do with these patients, it does vary from place to place. 
I frequently use dose-reduced uh, enoxaparin uh, with a once-daily injection as, as opposed to a twice-daily injection, one milligram per kilogram daily. But other places will use uh, IV un fractionated heparin followed by warfarin. For patients who are hemodynamically unstable, you need something that is going to be reversible. So heparin is your go-to and you can usually give it as an infusion because you can make micro adjustments. Uh, if patients have an anti anticipated discontinuation or reversible, reversal of anticoagulation, so you've got a patient who is going for surgery. That's going to be the main example there. You want, again, something that is going to be easy to reverse. Uh, patients with extensive clot burden, I mentioned this before, it is probably better to use unfractionated heparin or anoxaparin, low molecular weight heparin that is, uh, for patients with a high or an extensive clot burden. Basically, the idea is that this stabilizes, this is more effective at quickly stabilizing the clot. And also, if a patient needs a procedure such as a clot retrieval, you can reverse it, reduce the risk of bleeding. They can be monitored invasively if required. It gives you a lot more flexibility. Those are some of the special populations that you might need to move away from the standard apixaban and forget uh, strategy that we're using these days. Uh, it's also important to note that every hospital or every tertiary center will have a hematology unit. There are a lot of hematologists that specialize in thrombotic medicine and management of thrombosis. I always consult my friendly neighborhood hematologist if there are any of these special populations for advice. It's just safer that way. In terms of the duration of anticoagulation therapy, in the first episode, usually of a peripheral uh, venous thromboembolus, anticoagulation needs to continue for at least three to six months provided uh, there is a low bleeding risk and no contraindications. However, in most patients with an active cancer and a DVT or a PE, anticoagulation has to be indefinite. The reason being the causative agent is the cancer and the cancer isn't going away anytime soon. So you need to keep on thinning out the blood to counteract the cancer making it sticky. The rec recommendations on the up-to-date article that we used as the main source for this episode uh, recommend yearly re-evaluation of the benefit-risk ratio for anticoagulation to avoid unnecessary, unnecessary morbidity from bleeding or recurrence. That is especially important in patients with cancer. Cancer is a dynamic, ever-changing condition. Patients' disease burden changes, their uh, performance status changes, their sites of disease change. And so the risk benefit is going to be a constantly changing proposition. So it's important to always ask, ask yourself the question, does the patient still need to be on anticoagulation? And I guess the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is their prognosis as well, because there's no point anticoagulating someone and putting them at risk of a bleed if that is indeed a clinical risk in that scenario, uh, when their prognosis is very poor as well. That's a very grim note on which to end, Josh. DVTs and PEs, they're pretty easy to manage in patients with cancer, at least until they're not. That should have been the byline. <laughs> yes, the subtitle. Easy to manage until it's not. Exactly. Well, we hope you enjoyed our episode and we will catch you all for more oncology goodness in our next one. Sounds good. We'll see you then. Bye. See you. Bye. Bye.